If you're a boomer, wondering what to do with all this unstructured time on your hands? Well, join host Chuck Inman and Ron Hostry as they share with boomers how to be your best on your next journey by finding your passion, choosing your adventure, and igniting your activity. And now, stay tuned for The Adventures of Unstructured Time. Good morning, Ron Hostry here with... Chuck Inman. On 21.6 The Net, bringing you the show, The Adventures of Unstructured Time. Chuck, over 10,000 people are turning age 65 every day. Uh, That's right now. Exactly. One of the things that I've listened to other programs talking to this particular demographic, and there's two things that they always focus on. One, the financial aspects of retirement. And secondly, the estate planning aspects to hopefully make your kids rich. (laughs) But one of the things that's missing in this equation is that people don't realize that between the age of 65 and whenever they believe they're going to pass away, there's at least 20 years of time and activity that no one really plans for. And the purpose of this show is to bring people to the realization that this is a tremendous point in time of your life to do something significant for the rest of the world. So that brings us to how do you do that? You find your passion, you choose your adventure, and you ignite action. Chuck, help our listeners understand a little bit more about you. You've had a fantastic background, many different areas you've been involved with. Help me out. Why should they listen to you? Well, Ron, I I did have a great career. I was in the medical field with medical products, uh, started off manufacturing medical products, and I had a chance to work not only with manufacturing, but with research and development people, got to go out in the field with surgeons, watching different surgeries, and selling, and went into sales, went into marketing, were launching products, and and, uh, went domestically, went internationally. But one of the fascinating things about all my experiences that I had, there were two cases one on the surgical side, one on the pharmaceutical side, where we actually had a product recalls. And it was, I learned more from handling two product recalls than I did from anything else. So it's a process that, for the corporate world of, of dealing with adversity and things that just don't go well, the I did not plan that. Exactly. <laughs> that you've come up with an understanding of what people are going through at this particular point in their life. Well, I, I, I found it fascinating because being in sales, being in marketing, and working with product managers and salespeople, it was always interesting to watch how they handled stress and did things in just normal rollouts and normal situations. With the first product recall, it was absolutely fascinating to watch what went on within the, the corporate headquarters where you had research and development that was pointing to manufacturing, manufacturing's pointing to re, you know, regulatory affair. It was just a finger pointing game. And then sales was pointing to marketing. And it was like, oh my gosh, everybody take a deep breath here. And, and even going out in the field, working with the doctors and watching things happening, it was like, man, we gotta get a handle on this. And learned a lot from that. I mean, it was one when we announced that we were going, we pu- we pulled off the market for about two months. We went back in the um, in the field, and I went out working with key surgeons, with the sales reps and key surgeons around the country. We were in one situation where I went in in a big city, went in with the rep, 
And the rep was just telling the doctor, you know, the surgeon, you know, here's all the things I had to do. I had to pull product off the shelves. I had to go to UPS and ship them back. I had to keep track of all these numbers. He's going on and on. The surgeon gets finished with his surgeries for the morning, and the rep says, so, doc, you ready to use our product? The doctor takes his surgical gown off and throws it against the wall. Am I ready to use your product? And the rep grabs it and said, we got to get out of here. <coughs> and the rep, I said, why don't you, he pulled me aside. I said, why don't you go talk to the, the, the OR manager? And I said, I'm going to talk with the doc. He said, no, we need to go. I said, I'm going to talk to him. So I went down to the uh, dr dressing room and waited for the doc to come in. And when he came in, he was surprised. He kind of looked back, kind of startled to look at me. And I said, this recall was tough, wasn't it? He said, yeah, it was tough. He said, you know, my, my competition was putting ads on the radio about, you know, what, you know, what had gone on. Our staff didn't know what to tell the patients. The patients were asking questions. He said, my partners were looking at me like I was crazy because I'd used this product. And I just let him vent. I said, I, I could understand how frustrating that would be. We had our own problems on the inside, but, you know, we understand what you guys went through, too. And I said, why don't we go back and talk to the OR nurse and, um, manager and the sales rep and talk about how we can get some of these things straightened out for you and we went down and talked about you know so here's a script that you can tell your staff to answer questions for the patients here's some things that you can do for pr within the community and we took a very very bad situation and turned it into a very positive one well then that brings me to the case that's a fantastic story but how does that relate to a guy that's leaving a corporation and looking into unknown territories why is that relevant? Well, what was interesting about that was that I uh, had a chance to get into marketing training and became global director for marketing training. And we started looking at leadership skills because what I had experienced with the recalls was, you know what, there's our salespeople need some self-leadership training. And we started working on that for them, for they could handle themselves during difficulty and stress. And that's why we created an emotional intelligence program, leadership program, helping people how to deal with the things that they were going through because it was fascinating to watch how people responded in these stressful situations. You know, they either, it was, they either got very aggressive, like throwing a, a surgical gown against the wall, or they would retreat, you know, and flee, like, you know, the rep, we gotta get out of here and leave the room. Or, you know, you'd get some, you know, like the OR manager, you know, she just kind of froze up, didn't quite know what to do. So we started working on some things with emotional intelligence. How do you get people to handle through these, these different kind of situations? And guess what? When you retire and you start looking at retirement and what you're going to do, you're going to run into all sorts of things you're going to be hitting you. And the more you can understand that, the better you can work on the planning and developing the journey and where you want to go. Well, that's one of the things I noticed when I went through a big change. The unknown was a big issue to me. Right. And it created many of the same stress issues you just talked about. And what was interesting about that whole aspect was when uh, we would do role playing, when we would do these, these two-day training programs with not only salespeople but marketing people. And the role playing would take true-to-life scenarios that they would encounter. We said, here's what we're going to do. And then I'd write on the back of the flip chart, I'd say, okay, I'm going to describe three courses of action that you guys are going to take in this confrontational situation. And we'd walk through three or four people. One, you know, one person would be the, the, not the victim, but they would have uh, something had gone wrong with them. And the other would be the sales rep trying to sue them and talk about, you know, how do you get this conversation going? You know, can you show a little bit of empathy? 
And what was fascinating is three things would happen. They'd either try and get the other person to admit blame, you know, like, well, I did do something wrong, or they were so nice, you know, just using nicey to get around to it and never get to the point. Or they would try and come up with a solution before they even address the problem. And sometimes when we look at retirement, it's kind of the same thing. It's like, you know, well, let's come up with the solution. Well, where are we headed? You know, and it's like you talked at the very beginning in the intro. You know, sometimes the uh, programs are about financial planning. And the most difficult problem the financial planner has, he says, okay, so what do you guys want to do in retirement? And the couple looks at each other and says, <laughs> we don't know yet. It kind of makes it a little bit tough to figure out your planning cycle on that. So there are some interesting things that I learned from that big time. Well, I have a friend that listens to the, this show, and basically he said one of the biggest things that he had to deal with as far as the stressful situation is his wife had a career, he had a career, and now they're both home together at the same time, not knowing what to do. That could be stressful. That is very stressful for them because there's no commonality in what, what their goals are right. or how to spend the time. Or how to react? Is it okay if one of the spouses goes and does something while the other doesn't have an activity to go to? Right. And those are all of the things that come through the emotional intelligence as far as how do you handle those type of situations? What kind of behaviors do you fall back on? Right, those default behaviors. And that's one of the things I think is important about emotional intelligence is it allows you to stay in the game while you plan and decide where you want to go and, and what you'd like to do in, in this next act that you have that you can deal with. Well, prior to the, the magic moment when you leave your job and everything, we've been programmed to look at success from a particular paradigm, from a different way. What makes a successful person? And one of the, our identity is created and tied to that. When you were in a court war, what were some of the things that, that you looked at from a success standpoint? We know it was, it's funny, when I started off in, in college, I started off in pre-med. I thought I was gonna be a dentist, and my parents wanted me to be a dentist. And after my freshman year, I got to go spend some time with a dentist, and I'm going, I don't think I'd be very good at doing that. <laughs> so I had to go tell my parents, I said, I don't think this is cut out for me. And what was interesting, I loved biology, and I stayed with biology and got a degree in biology and a, and a degree in business. But when my first job uh, with the medical company, every time I'd get a promotion or raise, guess who were the first people I'd call? Who's that? Mom and dad. You know, just <laughs> tell them, you know, I, did, I didn't become a dentist, but I, look what I just did here. And so sometimes the values that we have and what our success is based on is based on the expectations of others. You know, do you have that nice house with the right zip code, you know, that, that the right car, to sending your kids to the right schools? You know, maybe it's private schools or universities or, you know, there's always things that, you know, it's based on other people's expectations and sometimes their values are influencing what your values are. Well, I don't know about you, but when I was going through that period of my life, there was a lot of stress in making decisions about what my next move was. Right. You know, we talk about buying the right house. What was the right house for the period of time I was in in my life? Mm -hmm. And what what did that house have to do? Was it a house for status? Was it a house to house a family? Uh, was it in the right neighborhood? Uh, the car that I drove? 
Uh, did I want it to be a sports car to convey an image and that type of thing? How does that relate to a person who's now going through another big change in their life? Well, I think it's interesting. I, uh, a good friend of mine, Richard Chernowski, he and I were talking about this, and I traveled around the world with him. He taught marketing to, to the product managers, he, branding. I mean, we'd, we would teach him branding, forecasting, advertising, those things. And, and uh, we were talking about success versus significance. And, and we got into a conversation on the phone that went for about 45 minutes or so. And he said, I'd like to write some, something about success versus for your book, if that's okay. And I said, sure, would love it. He said, how much can I write? I said, you can write a paragraph, you can write a chapter. And he wound up writing, he got so involved, he thought it was gonna be easy, like one or two paragraphs, he could summarize it. He wound up writing a chapter. He did an absolutely brilliant job with it. And, um, but he got uncovering, you know, what's the difference between success versus significance? And one of the interesting things that he laid out, you know, success is what we do for ourselves to bring our status up and some of the things that we look at. And not all that's negative, but you start looking at significance and then it's what, what is the impact that you have on others? How do you impact others in a positive way? And that's kind of interesting when you start breaking that down. Well, when I look at uh, people in my life and uh, what happened to my relationships, because now I'm in a completely different relationship with people. I tried to go back and be who I was when I wasn't who I was at that time. Right. I went back to an industry I was well regarded in, uh, did a lot of professional speaking in it and whatever, but there was something that was missing at that point in time. And I realized that I had to make a change that, that, that no longer fit. And there was a process I had to go through of how do I now deal with the relationships that I had in the past and the relationships I'm going to have in the future with family members I might see more often, with a wife I might see more <laughs> often, with people in the community that I now interact with on a much different level than I did previously. I'll tell you that that same amount of stress in redefining that many times was as great, if not greater, than the stress of, of being in charge of a corporation. Oh, exactly. And, and one of the reasons behind that, not the main reason, but a very good reason, so much of our identity associated with our success and, and who we are and what we do. And so I've, and you're a pilot and you understand this, you, you fly, uh, but I've had a couple of commercial pilots tell me when they retired, they said, you know, I could walk into an airport, I got all the respect in the world because I was a captain, you know, flying for United Airlines or Delta and and I could go places in, in uniform, people knew who I was. All of a sudden, I didn't get a chance to wear that uniform. People didn't have a clue who I was. Mm -hmm. And I just, I lost my identity. And, and that can be very difficult. And so sometimes you see people who work so hard for success, for that identity, that place, and then you look at their private life where they're working hard to fill the voids that they have because they've, you know, they're, their family members miss them, their relationships are strained, and they're, you know, they're out of touch with the community and so forth, and that's tough, that's, that's really tough, and they're afraid to walk away from that career, knowing that there's some shambles in, in some other areas, and it's like, <laughs> so how do you pull all of that together? And I think that's what Richard really pulled together nicely with significance, talking about significance and what is that, when you look at you know, helping others, shifting from being about yourself 
to helping others, and that makes a major impact. I think one of the biggest upsets in my life, if I was in that pilot's position, would be having to pay $25 a bag now to ship my <laughs> luggage when he used to go for free. Exactly, exactly. So so one of the things, you know, that, that Richard writes about is discovering the why, you know, in your life. What's that sense of purpose, you know? You'll be able to, uh, you know, realize your best is when you follow your purpose. But it takes a little bit of work to figure out what your purpose is. But when you start to focus on that side, starting to look at it, and one of the things that, you know, we talk about and I suggest is, you know, take a look at, you know, what are your dreams and what are your goals, you know, and what were the dreams you had as a kid, you know, uh, what are some goals that you wanted to do, and, and dream big, because dreams don't cost anything, they're, they're free, and dream big, and then go back, and as you make that list, and say, hey, you know, what, what were the goals that were based upon my values, and what were the goals that were based on other people's values? And when you start to do that, you, you realize that there are some goals on your list that you can actually scratch off because they're not based on your values now. When your focus is turned on significance and having a positive impact on others, you can start to find those goals that are most important to you. And then you start to look at some things that, that have to deal with passion. Well, we talked about success a little bit ago. And what you just said triggered a thing for me that there's a lot of people that have the air of success. You look at it and say, wow, they're really successful. But deep down, they're barely hanging on. Right. That they're, they're successful on an outward appearance. They have all the right shoes. They have the right car. They have the right house. But inside, they're torn up because they've struck. Uh, they strive for the materialistic things right? with no purpose of why they're doing it. And when there's a hiccup in those materialistic things, like you talked about the recalls that went on, the factors that, that you're thwarted from getting to what you want to get to next, it upsets them completely. When you focus and really figure out what's my purpose, why am I here, what am I going to do, those don't have as great an impact on you because you have a, a goal that's farther out. Right. And so th when you look at that, uh, some of the steps that you go through, like uh, giving thanks, being grateful, instead of complaining about what you don't have, be thankful for what you do have. When I hit the retirement transition, I don't like the word retirement because I'm not really retired. I've just refocused my efforts. Refocus onto a new journey. Onto a new journey. People would ask me, oh, what's going to happen when you sell the company? When you retire from the, when you retire? And I tell them, I'm not going to be doing this for the rest of my life. But I'm certainly not going to be retired. Right. I'm going to be engaged in activities and go out and find those activities that fill that void that the material things didn't quite fill. Right. That the some of the relationships that I had for the wrong reasons in business and everything did not fill. And you can zero in on your passion and your purpose because you, you start to notice things are changing. Right. They're changing within you with every time you try something new. And, uh, and that's one of the reasons too why, you know, when you talk, brought, brought up gratitude, when you sit down and look at your dreams and look at your goals, one of the first thing is, you know, jot down, what are you grateful for? At this stage in your life, what are you grateful for? And then from that, start working your dreams in, okay, I'm grateful for this, this, and this. 
you know, what would you dream of doing? And then what kind of goals would you work with? Well, there's uh, two things uh, many organizations look for, especially charitable organizations, nonprofits, and whatever. They're looking for people to share two things. One is their talent, and the other is their treasure. And that has doesn't have to be both. Right. If you provide one of those, you become a tremendous asset to that organization. Through that, you now build a new social network. And that's what I found. I got invited to be on a couple of local boards of directors for the community. And I didn't know who the other board members were. I met a whole new group of people, a group of people that each have talents and treasures of their own that they bring the equation. And I'm thankful that I can now be a part of that and start going forward with more significance than just being a, the, the flashy guy in the community. Right. Well, and it's interesting because during my corporate career, I, I would, had so much going on that I didn't have a chance to do a whole lot of volunteering. When you're traveling internationally, it's, <laughs> it's kind of tough to raise a family <laughs> and kind of just keep yourself held together. But once I retired, I, I had a chance to join Summer Santa's children's charity and on the board of directors. Didn't quite know what I was going to do, but, you know, they asked me to, to join. A, now, a, what's Summer Santa? They, they've been an organization in northeast Tarrant County here in, in northern North Texas, and they've been around for 20 years, and they've given 40,000 kids uh, chances to go experience some, some camps and have some experiences that they normally wouldn't get, underprivileged kids. And, and then we do back-to-school shopping with them where they get a chance to go um, – pick up some new clothes and for some of them it's the first time they've ever had new clothes because a lot of times in the middle of the night when they go to a battered women's shelter everything they own is in a grocery bag and so and they've had hand-me-downs their entire life so they get to go buy new shoes you know new clothes and then get a, a backpack stuffed with books and i had worked i had taken over the responsibility of, of stuffing the backpacks and, and giving them books and and they get a year <laughs> supply of of school supplies in the backpacks and stuff and so that's where i started i said well, this is a pretty manual job, but it's like it's kind of fun and, and got a kick out of it. Well, then we got a call from one of the uh, middle schools. They said, hey, our kids, 6th, 7th, and 8th graders, they want to work with the charity, and it came down to three, and you're one of the charities. Could you send someone out to talk to the kids? And so they asked me, would you go out and talk to the kids in uh, this middle school? And I said, okay. So I went out and and shared with them what Summer Santa had done, and they were putting on a winter carnival. And so when it was all said and done, they said, we'd like to come present you a check for what we raised for Summer Santa. These honking kids, they raised, they gave us a check for $6,000. Wow. And so, and so the last three years, they've given Summer Santa over $16,000 from these carnivals that they have. And so Summer Sand, after being on their board for five years, I was going to step down and, and do some other things. And, and they said, well, we'll let you step down, but would you stay on as the director of the Art of Philanthropy and work with the kids in the schools? And just, I've been having a blast with that. We're going to start in a couple of weeks. We're going to go have a, you know, back-to-school pizza party luncheon for, with them and talk about what the carnival means and what it does and what, where the money goes when you raise it for the kids. And part of the awareness is, you know, you don't realize that the money that you raise and do are helping kids within your own school. And this one girl came up after, after and said, you know what's so neat about this is you don't have to be an adult to help kids. 
you know, and <laughs> I, I, five years ago, I would never would have thought I would have been doing something like that. And so, like you said earlier, sometimes you just have to show up. You know, you got to get started with it. But that's that's the part of significance. What I think is really really cool. Well, I laugh about the time we're sitting on the back deck at the uh, ranch, and you shared with me that that the truck showed up a day early with all the goods and supplies. <laughs> Yep. To move all of that. Right. <clears throat> because all the work crews were scheduled for the next day. Yeah. But I, I've never seen you so happy as talking about the fact that you could be there, you worked your tail off, and I saw more excitement in your eyes about that than the excitement when you were talking to me about being in a surgeon's room as a very significant portion of a large company right. selling a product. Right. Oh, it's just, I mean, when you, when you watch the reaction from the kids and when they have their winter carnivals, just to buy a group of tickets and go around, you know, you're bouncing ping pong balls into, you know, little, little cups and, and doing little things. They get the biggest kick because, you know, you go around and you talk to them and you say, hey, do you realize what you're doing, you know, for these, you know, kids that, that need some help? And, and they just they just beam and just smile. And you realize I you know, made just a little bit of an impact. And so when I go talk to them now, I talk to them about the art of philanthropy and what they do. And I even have wristbands for them, the art of philanthropy, you know, Summer Santa's children's charity. So from a standpoint of uh, affecting people's lives, through changing 30 kids' lives in a classroom, or maybe it's 100 kids' lives in a school, whatever th those three grades came out to be well let me, let me share real quick it started off with 15 kids i went and talked to last year there were 90 kids that had volunteered doing right so but from now until the rest of their those kids lives imagine the millions of lives that are going to be touched by the lesson that you brought by showing up to a middle school right is that any less significant than when you had a quote successful uh, part of your career? Oh, I, I think it's, you know, at, at this stage in life, it's, it's, a, it's a great reward, you know, for, for what I'm doing. So, you know, you, you have to love that part. I think one of the things, the interesting quotes, you know, that Mark Twain w wrote about, he said, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day that you discover why. And sometimes it takes us a, it takes a lot of hard work to figure out the why. We think we know it because we have, a, you know, have had a successful career, and then we're looking for, you know, this part B, you know, as we get ready to head into retirement, what else we can do? And we find that, that right thing, and it's very, very rewarding. It's more on the intrinsic side than the extrinsic side. You mentioned Mark Twain, and you, you refer to people in the past, and reading is a part, or listening to some of the scholars of the past. One of my favorite Mark Twain quotes is, those who do not read the newspaper are uninformed. Those that do are misinformed. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that true? Uh, but anyway, to, to go on, it just hit me. Because uh, Mark Twain, there's a lot of wisdom with him and Will Rogers and others about going forward in life. Uh, but we're given a unique opportunity. A unique opportunity to format, design, and live the third act of our life. Right. And How do people go about doing that? Well, and, and one of the things that, that I, th I think is important is, is, is writing it down. I mean, there's, there's magic that happens when you write things down. You know, I always share the story of, you know, I, I wrote down one time, uh, you know, I want to travel internationally. 
two weeks later, I got a call. Hey, there's an international product manager position open. And I took it, you know, referenced it, you know, got the job. And then 40, 40 countries later, I got all my international experience in. Well, but that had a lot to do with flying. And one of the things that I've run into and see people that run into it coming out, they're afraid, afraid to go, go do something new, afraid to take that step, afraid because they've been programmed that failure is not an option. Right. Well, what, what's, 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 it, what, what's interesting, you know, you, I take a look at, you know, the fact that, you know, I've flown to over 40 different countries and traveled extensively and just and, and had a blast doing it. But my very first flight, I was in Flagstaff, Arizona. I was actually, I was going to Chicago, but you have to fly from Flagstaff down to Phoenix. Never been on an airplane before. So check in and everything, and, and it was SkyWest Airlines. And so get on board, you know, find your seat. And I'm going, oh, I hope I get a window seat. And, and of course, on <laughs> SkyWest, you get a window <laughs> and an aisle seat at the same time. <laughs> and as we're taxiing, I'm going, I wonder <clears> if <throat> I'm afraid of flying. You know, that hadn't hit me till I was on the tarmac. I said, what if I freak out once we start to get up in the air? And, you know, the, the propellers, it wasn't, wasn't jet, it was propellers. <laughs> start revving up, and I'm going... Oh my gosh! And we were up at seven thousand feet in the pine trees, and I'm going, man! I, I just and I started really just having, you know, my this part of my brain called the amygdala started firing, going, warning, warning! You're going to leave the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and we we took off, and as we get up over the trees, I'm going, wow! I've never seen the top of a pine tree like this before. <laughs> and we get going, and then I started seeing things that I recognized, and we flew over the Verde Valley and. And I'm going, this is awesome. And um, <coughs> went on and, and landed in Phoenix. And then I got on the, you know, the, the big jet going to Chicago. And, and I said, I wonder what it's going to be like. Because I have no clue. We're, you're a pilot. We're probably flying 12, 13,000 feet. Probably not a whole lot. Fly and I said, now we're going to go up to 32,000 feet. I right. wonder what that looked like. <laughs> and luckily, I had a window seat and just loved it. And it took off flying like that for, you know, for around the world. So. Now, you know it's a small airline when the pilot turns around and says, Hey, you, would you get that back door for me? <laughs> <laughs> and the reason that they don't serve cocktails on those small flights because the pilots aren't 21 yet. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That's where most of the new guys start out with. But you know, um, it's interesting but, when we talk about fear. One, one of the things about fears is, you know, the, one of the most important things Sometimes, the, you know, the one thing that you fear the most is the thing that's holding you back. And if you can walk through that fear, it'll open up doors for you that are just phenomenal. Like, I didn't know if I had a fear of flying, you know, but you just you show up and you do it. And it opened up some phenomenal things. You know, when, when we were uh, young, Dad was really, we'd go camping for, for two weeks a, a year. I mean, he loved to do that up in the White Mountains in Arizona. Now, your dad had quite a history. He did. He did. He was one of the original frogmen. He was underwater demolition, and uh, they called him the frogmen, the naked warriors during the the, mm -hmm. the Korean skirmish. And, and they became the, the, the Navy SEALs. The yeah. Navy SEALs. Right. Right. Yeah. He was. <laughs> we'd, we'd go camp. Now, when we went camping with when we were younger, went camping with the family. We had tents and cots. When my brother and I got older, we went. We didn't have tents. We'd have a tarp with us, but. You know, if it rained, we'd, you know, get under the tarp. But we'd slept on the ground, and, you know, we we took in instant mashed potatoes. And 
I think Tang, and then we picked stra we picked strawberries and you know cotton. We didn't take fishing poles. So you we lived off the land. We did. We'd go back for a week or so and just living off the land doing that, and, so, and, and taught us a whole lot. That was in Colorado. We'd, we you know we'd go do that every year, and it was just a blast. And I didn't realize that you know people went in and set up tents and everything when they went camping <laughs> and packed in all now that did, food. Did you were what eight nine years old at the time? Yeah, we're probably, probably close to around 10, yeah. 10? Yeah. Uh, your dad went in, dropped you off for two weeks, came yeah. back, got <laughs> you. <laughs> <laughs> just about. No. Just about. But it, it was fun. And then from, from there, as we got older, we'd go in even farther on horseback and stuff. But but when we were younger, when we'd go, you know, with my mom and my sister and, and my brother and I, the whole family, when we would go, uh, we didn't like the dark, you know, the, the, the kids. Well, there's scary animals out there. <laughs> exactly. And dad said, no, the dark darkness can be your friend. And we're thinking, seriously, he said, now what's in the dark can hurt you, but darkness can be your friend. And so one day he went out and it, he took us out in this meadow and there was a stump out on this meadow. And he said, I'm going to put three quarters here. And when it gets dark, I'm going to give you a, a flashlight. And then one at a time you go out and pick up your quarter and bring it back. And you each get a quarter if you go out and get it. And so, of course, my sister, who's two years younger than I am, she was the first one that went out. And she got her quarter and came back. And my brother and I looked at each other, and <laughs> it was like, we're not going to let her outdo us. And so we would walk out and, you know, pick the quarter off the stump and realize that, you know, with the flashlight, and there was nothing wrong with that. So that helped us overcome the fear portion. Well, when did you get to the point where the first kid went out and grabbed three quarters? <laughs> <laughs> That's why we didn't let my brother go first. <laughs> he was an older brother. You know how they work. Well, what are some of the things you learned out of that? Well, I, I think one of the things, you know, in life, you're going to make mistakes. You know, correct them. You know, you'll get confused, you know. And sometimes when you get confused, if you've got it written down, you know where you're going. Um, you know, sometimes people will, will make mistakes or get confused, and then if they don't have a destination, they just wander around out in the meadow with a flashlight. <laughs> don't make it back to camp. So, you know, I, I think those are a couple of the key ones. But, but also, you know, uh, one of the things that I learned with the emotional intelligence training and, and some of the best friendships that I had with my customers during the recalls were the ones who were the maddest at, at the company. And I'd be the guy that got to the point where I was the guy, the doctor was the most ticked off. I'd be the one that'd go out and go into surgery with him and talk to him. And then we'd go have dinner and, and so forth and develop those. And it was just, you know, using those, those words and developing those relationships Help me understand. You know, I, I know this has been tough for you. I know what you've been going through. Help me understand what we can do to make this a little bit better. And just and they they get a chance to vent. They understand that empathy. And then you listen to them and you follow up on what you say you're going to do. It, it helps. It helps in the especially when you've got two people at home at the same time in a stressful situation. Like, hey, let's sit down. Help me understand what we can work on to make this a workable situation for us if as we figure out our journey uh, or journeys and where we're going and the adventures that we're going to take. And keep in mind, not every adventure has to be an epic adventure. There are going to be small adventures that two people can work on that help them down the road on the same journey. Well, tell me, there are people that are in a situation where there might be some fear about the future. Right. They tend to hibernate or they just avoid conflict, you know, the fight or flight type of thing. Right. Now, you've put together some information or you've written a book and a workbook to take them through. If people want to get a hold of you to find out how to start this process, how do they do that, Chuck? 
Oh, one of the easiest ways is go to the adventurejerky.com website. And we've got, we've got leather-bound journals that you can get started <laughs> with. We've got uh, guidebooks for you. We've, we've got the book, How to Be Your Best on Your Next Journey. And the guidebook that goes along with it, because sometimes, you know, you like to stretch out and, you know, write things down. But it's got step-by-step exercises that you can walk through that are in line with the book. And all of those. And we even have jerky on the website. So something to chew on while you're gaining some new ideas (laughs) and thoughts and so forth. So that's a great place to go to get started with it. Great. But, you know, Ron, what's what's interesting with the studies that they've done on fear, it's every society around the world has a fear of the unknown i mean that's just it's something that everybody you know there's that part of your brain that amygdala part of your brain that just kind of goes bonkers if it doesn't know what's happening it takes it out of that comfort zone it's all part of a basic survival thing that we have and so if you think about sometimes the fear of the unknown think about the resources what are the resources you have that that got you to where you are today they may not be applicable in you know you know, you may think, well, they're only applicable here, but not there. I just did a video blog l- two weeks ago. On, I went into the fitness center where I work out, and part of it was people said, well, I don't have the resources to do this. And, you know, it's like, well, I want to go rock climbing or train for rock climbing, but I don't have the resources to do this. Or, you know, I want to do stairs, but there's not a stadium close by. Or I want to flip tires, you know, across the field, tractor tires to get in shape, but there's no field and I don't have a tractor tire. You may have a tractor tire, (laughs) (laughs) but not many. So I went in and videotaped. There's there's a thing called the Jacob's Ladder, and it's just like a treadmill on an angle with bars across it. And you kind of climb this Jacob's Ladder that gets you you in in shape like doing stadium stairs, and it's, it's pretty wicked. And then there's also, there's a climbing wall. It's like a treadmill up on its side. It's about a 15-foot climbing wall. It's not a 40-foot climbing wall, but it rotates like a treadmill. And it's got different handholds and footholds in, in different places. You know, and there's a tractor tire, which I flip 20 times a day because there's 20 veterans a day that commit suicide in the U.S. But it's a half a tractor tire on hinges. And you flip it, and you walk around the other side, flip it back over. So you don't need a field. You don't even need a full tractor tire for that. So sometimes the resources that got Is that what retired people do? That's right. (laughs) Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) That was bad. The... uh, but one of the things that, that people say, well, I don't have the resources, but if you look at the resources that they, that they have utilized and know how, how to have access to, it, you can use those in a different format and frame for a different journey. You just have to refocus on that. Now, you just had an experience. You, you went on a missionary trip in the Philippines. Tell us what one of your goals <laughs> was on, on that trip. That was an interesting trip because you talk about the unknown. You know, Donald Rumsfeld said there is the known, the unknown unknown, and the known unknown. (laughs) (laughs) Well, on this trip, I had the, uh, what we call it, the Guns for Jesus program. We're going to the Philippines. We learned that the police chief on Bataan Island, from him, the the people that are over there, said they'd never clean their guns. They've had them 15, 20 years, but they just didn't have the resources to do it. So our pastor came to me because I was going on a trip and said, hey, w- would you mind going and putting together a program so that the people on Battalion Island, the police, can clean their weapons? At first I said, wow, this is fantastic. And then I started to think about how am I going to get gun cleaning kits? One on the airlines, through customs, 
through immigration of different stops along the trip because you can't fly from Dallas directly to Cebu in the Philippines. And, uh, and I started to worry about every step of that process. And so I sat down and you have a great friend who's uh, head of the TSA <laughs> at uh, Dallas Airport. Mm-hmm. And you called him up and said, hey, the guy's doing this. What does he need to know? And came back with some great resources about how to go research what's what's allowed on a plane, what's not allowed on a plane, that type of thing. So I kind of followed those procedures. Then went and said, okay, what about packing them? Uh, so I found ways of packing it. We had the police chief of battalion send a letter to us saying that, yes, he's requested these. These are for his department and this and that. Well, I knew absolutely nobody in this entire process. And I came to a realization that I was fearful because I didn't have the resources available to make sure this would actually happen. And it wasn't until we reached out to people that we found out, yeah, there's a possibility that could happen. And just like Indiana Jones, I had the cleaning kits in the suitcase. We check in a for the DFW to head to Hong Kong where we had a 14-hour layover. They won't book your flight for the next segment if it's more than 24 hours away from what your original point is. Well, with an 11-hour trip and a 14-hour layover, we were only booked to Hong Kong. And we had to go ahead and we got off the plane and I thought, oh my God, we got to go out to customs, grab this stuff, come back through customs. I said, I'm not sure what's going to happen there. And so we left the plane, went down. We looked at our next flight, and it was on Cathay Pacific. We're going American from Dallas to Hong Kong, Cathay Pacific to Cebu. Well, Cathay Pacific's one of the One World Alliance partners of America. The minute we got off the plane, we went to their information booth and said, hey, look, here's our situation. We really don't want to go out through customs and come back in and all that. That's going to take a lot of time. Is there any way you, as an airline, can go pick up our bags? Here's the four baggage tickets. Retag them to Cathay and just move them across and take them off. And he says, yeah, we can do that. (laughs) So we involved someone else in the process that could solve that problem. So then I get to Cebu, which is the major airport. The prior to a three-hour bus trip and a ferry ride to Batayan Island. We get off the plane. We don't know what's going to happen next. We walk very slowly from the plane to immigration as we're texting Trevor, who's our guy on the ground over there, to find out, okay, what's going to happen? Is it going to be a small interrogation room, handcuffs, or will there be a hi, how you doing, a welcoming party? <laughs> we didn't know. We came through immigration. I had no answers. The four of us go through and this very nicely dressed Philippine National Police captain <laughs> comes up and says, Mr. Hostry, and I had uh, sent a picture ahead of time. He says, welcome to the Philippines. This is officer, uh, whoever it was from Bintayan Island, and uh, we're here to escort you. Well, that could have two connotations. <laughs> he said, go get your luggage and bring it to us. 
So we went and got the luggage and came back. And he says, uh, we've been waiting for you and follow us. And so we followed him right past all of the x-ray machines, past all the screening, this little doorway he opened up. We went out. We were past everything. He says, uh, my officers will uh, handle your luggage because the van that's going to pick you up is about 20 minutes late. <laughs> so we went up and we sit in his office, have coffee, talk about good things. What comes out is he had a friend over in immigration that went ahead and put us as visiting dignitaries to the country, <laughs> which gave us diplomatic status. <laughs> and all of the fear that I experienced at the first part of the trip all dissipated because there were a number of people in the process that helped us accomplish our goal. Yep. And part of hibernating or fleeing when you hit a big change in your life is that you don't use those resources that will make that transition a lot easier. Right. And so it was funny. I I joke all the time with people now about what I anticipated caused me to do some research, but the amount of fear I experienced was unwarranted because I knew that I didn't know it, but there was an entire support team of people behind me to make sure things happened. There is a tremendous support team of people that know and love you that are there to help you make this transition to your next stage of your life. Right. And sometimes all you have to do is just ask. You ask. And yeah. that's one of the most fearful things because we're always told that we're supposed to have all the answers. Right. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting. You know, you, a couple of times you talked about, you know, just the fear of the unknown and not knowing what was going to happen next. There's this part of the brain, and, and I think our next show, we're going to go into chemical brain freeze a little bit deeper, but I'll share a little bit with it. And I wrote about it in my book, uh, Chemical Brain Freeze, How to Stay in the Game During Difficulty and Stress, is this, this part of the brain called the amygdala that's your, that's your warning system for you. And I'll, I'll give you an example. Say if you're walking down the sidewalk and you hear a horn honking and you turn around and there's a cab that's jumped up on the, on the curb that's coming at you, you know, and your 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 amygdala is going. You know, I didn't know my wife drove a cab. <laughs> warty, warty, get out of the way, you know. And you dive into the grass and and get out of the way, and and they say, you know, so why is it that the amygdala responds to stimulation more so than the neocortex? Because if you're walking down, you hear the horn honk, and you turn around, the thinking part of your brain would go. Huh, I wonder if that's a yellow cab or a checker cab. <laughs> do they charge the same fare on the sidewalk as they do in the street? I wonder that, bam, I mean, that nails you. But, but you, your amygdala goes, cab, get out of the way, you jump <coughs> in the grass. Now, here's a fascinating thing. You're walking down the same sidewalk the next day, and you hear a horn honk. Your amygdala goes, cab, get out of the way, and you jump into the grass. Then you hear a second honk a little bit farther away and fading and you roll over there's a car going the opposite direction going around a bicyclist and this is the amazing thing that your amygdala can't differentiate between perception and reality that's why when you go in and watch a movie you know you'll see people taking in boxes of kleenexes your amygdala can't differentiate it gets so absorbed in it's such a powerful you know motion driven thing that's why when you watch a rocky movie you know, the whole audience is dodging and darting and fighting or, you know, Indiana Jones when he's running and the arrows are flying and people are dodging. It's, it's 
might as well be real. And so when you talk about the fears and the fears of the unknown, that's being real also. Your amygdala doesn't know the difference. And that's why you have to overcome that and know how to deal with that because you can overcome default behaviors where you can take that step out and contact people to make things happen. So how do you overcome that? What well, are some of the things you do? Well, and we will talk, we'll, we'll talk about that more. We'll get more in-depth in that in the, in the next show. But I think one of the things, one of the biggest things that you can do, number one, take a deep breath because your system goes in. It starts doing all these things. Your heart starts beating faster. You know, your breathing gets shallow. And your brain starts to pump, you know, insulin or um, different uh, adrenaline into your system. And, you know, your temperature starts to go up for your big muscles, you know, either in your legs or your arms for, your, you know, either going to be fighting or you're going to be running and fleeing. All of these ha things happen very, very quickly. And unless you do something to cut all that stuff out of your system and, and stop this chemical brain freeze from happening, you know, you know, take a deep breath and that'll start to cut into the system because you're going the shallow breathing to oxygenate the blood that's going to these major muscle groups. Breathe deeply and that starts to cut in the system. And one of the biggest things that you can do is uh, think of gratitude, something that you're grateful for. And that's huge when you can do, you know, something like that. And, and, then, and then start asking the front part of your brain, the neocortex, start asking the questions, hey, is this going to matter you know, three hours from now? Is this going to matter three weeks from now, three months from now? And you get the thinking part of your brain working again, and you can functionally work with that and stuff. So, Well... There's many symptoms that happen when you're under stress that people who are now facing retirement, facing age 65, facing those big changes in life, they, will, they go through the same symptoms. Right. And it has to do with uh, cortisol levels that are in them. What are some of the symptoms that people will feel during that period of time that that they feel when they're in actual danger? Oh. And how, what are similarities? You know, and, and this is going through mergers and acquisitions, watching how people respond and so forth. But you get that cortisol in your system, you know, you get suppressed immunity where people start to, you know, they start getting sick. You know, they get hypertension where they need blood pressure medication. You know, insulin resistance. You know, carbohydrate cravings where they start to get, you know, fatty tissues around the face, the neck, and the belly. These are all, you know, some of the symptoms associated with that, like, you know, severe fatigue, muscle weakness, depression, anxiety, irritability, loss of emotional control and cognitive difficulties. Those are all things when you start to have chemical brain freezes, uh, thinking about your next journey and, and what you're going to do. And so here's one of the key things that you can work on is when you start to feel that gratitude and fear, the two most powerful emotions that, that we have. And gratitude is stronger than fear. So if you can think of something that you're truly grateful for, and again, write it down because there's magic there, you'll eliminate that fear and you'll minimize the amount of cortisol that gets into your system. Cortisol. Well, you talked about f forgetting things or, mm. or cognitive dis uh, dis difficulties. I have a friend who, for the majority of his life, since cell phones have been prevalent, has had a f cell phone screwed into his ear. <laughs> he's always had a computer with him. Right. When he started going through this transition, uh, and, and I could see the stress sitting in of not knowing what to do the next day because he always had a schedule. He always had a purpose to go work on a project in a large uh, engineering firm. Yeah. 
that he would get someplace and realize he forgot his cell phone that then created a tremendous amount of more stress or the computer that he didn't take that with him. And that created other problems down the line. Yeah. And it's when you get to the point that you get so consumed with these physical aspects, mental aspects, and the fear of the unknown that we forget things. There's no margin left in our life. Right. There's no margin for happiness. There's no margin for thought. There's no margin for journaling. And it becomes a reality of knowing that we have to take time to make those priorities and reuse our unstructured time not to be the way that we were, but to the way we want to be. Right. That's it, it, is, that, is that fair? It's a whole shift of paradigms, but you're right on target. You exactly are. It's a whole shift of paradigms. Yep. Where does that take us? Well, I think it, 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 you know, as we start to wrap up here, and, and next show, we're going to be working uh, more on chemical brain freeze and understand the dynamics of that. And we'll talk a little bit more about change and, and what happens when we go through change. And, and we'll talk about how we start to map that out. So, you know, I think, you know, visit the website. And um, there's some great tools on, on there. And get, and get started with it. And we'll, we'll walk you through some Well, for those things. that are overstressed and haven't written in a journal, what is the website? It's adventurejerky.com. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. Uh, one of the things that, that this program is doing, and we're setting up the first few shows to give you the basics of what you're dealing with. It is real. It is a tremendous change in your life. And we want to, to one, let you recognize what's happening and then give the tools that will take you on the process to transition from success to significance. And that's a passion. Exactly. There, I cannot tell you how many people I've talked to that have said, this has never been addressed. We're always supposed to know how to treat this. We're supposed to take the gold watch and go out and have fun and take a cruise. Well, I got to tell you, there's so many buffets on a cruise that you can eat. <laughs> There's so many things you do. It can be a part of your plan, but you will become more significant if there's a purpose and you look for every opportunity that you run into. You mentioned that one of your goals is to change someone's life every day, right. even if it's one person. Right. If you approach life from that standpoint, you have that purpose, you have the ability, the talent and the treasures to do that, and you incorporate it, I don't think there's any greater reward. I've never felt that level of satisfaction for a sustained period of time as you feel when you're when you're doing that. Right. Whether it was in corporate America or uh, associations I've been in, whatever. Yep. It's, it's very powerful. So good. So Chuck, I got to tell you, what a journey we're going to be on of unstructured time. This is 21.6 The Net. With Ron Hostry and... Chuck Inman. Chuck Inman. Talking about the adventures of unstructured time. But we'd like to you to structure into your life 11 o'clock every Monday as we go on this journey together so that we can transition from success to significance.
21.6 The Net is brought to you in part by the generous support of our sponsor, Northern Illinois Windows, Inc. We are a commercial and residential window servicing company committed to providing the highest quality service at an affordable price. Our highly trained technicians will make every aspect of your window cleaning needs worry-free. Northern Illinois Windows, Inc., 815-385-6646. Again, 815-385-6646. 216thNet is sponsored and supported in part by Natural Therapy Wellness Center. 815-385-8190. McHenryMassage.com. How often do you take time for yourself? A massage can be a great way to pamper yourself, but it can also help alleviate or sometimes even cure those ailments that you deal with regularly. Contact us today to speak to one of our certified therapists about your needs. Natural Therapy Wellness Center, 815-385-8190. 216thNet is sponsored by and broadcast from Sticker Dude, the creators of Vinyl Chaos. 815-322-2480, StickerDude.com. The Sticker Dude team brings over 25 years of experience from the graphic, marketing, and sales industry. Advertising on vehicles and other services, full attention on the design, print, and installation is given to your project. From in-house full-time installers to our top-of-the-line printing and finishing room. Contact us today to learn what you need to look for and why before committing to making an investment in vehicle wraps. We're not your corner sign shop. Sticker Dude, call 815-322-2480. Experience, education, character, an inherent ability with numbers, an exceptional CPA. These are the reasons why business owners choose Eric Mason of Mobile Accounting for their bookkeeping, payroll, and tax services. Call Eric at Mobile Accounting, 224-321-6859. That's 224-321-6859. 216NET is supported by highly reputable sponsors like Xtech Repair. Why do customers keep coming back to XTech Repair? Because of owners committed to building relationships. No one and done attitudes. Their 60 day guarantee on all repairs and IT service subscription plans that help business customers avoid the shock of a large unexpected repair bill. XTech addresses all your IT needs in one place web design, web hosting, social media support, custom-built desktops with a two-year parts and labor warranty, and just for fun, gaming machines with repair and service support. Visit online xtech.repair, that's x-t-e-k dot r-e-p-a-i-r. Visit in person at the corner of Pingree and 176 in Crystal Lake, Illinois, or call 815-516-8075. That's 815-516-8075. X-Tech Repair for IT done right the first time. 216-7.